0: Welcome to First Floor Corner Store, a podcast about building and strengthening community in the built environment. Today, I had an opportunity to sit down with Peter Adams. Peter is a senior policy advisor for Mayor Bill de Blasio in the Office of Recovery and Resiliency. Now, his job title is kind of a mouthful, which is probably because his job is a very complicated one. He's been working for a long time to help communities and local government and national organizations understand the risks and obstacles associated with climate change and how exactly these risks are likely going to impact the way these people live and grow and conduct business. If I had to summarize what Peter does, I would probably say something like his job is to understand the structural and cultural and ecological implications of climate change in a very dense urban environment. Now, obviously that encompasses a lot of stuff. Like I said, Peter's job is a very complicated one, but I was able to grab him right after lunch in what some folks refer to as Civic Center, a neighborhood in lower Manhattan, which is directly across the street from New York City Hall. Yeah, no, I'm so glad to talk to you. Um, so my first question is really, I'm trying to figure out what you do on a daily basis. I have a broad sense of kind of the work that you're involved in and some of the work that you've done prior to being here, but what do you do on a daily basis when you're in this office?
1: Well, I would say our work really splits into two things. First, we're, we're looking back and we're also looking forward. We're looking back at Hurricane Sandy in particular. Uh, it's almost been five years now, uh, but the reconstruction and the recovery efforts are uh, long and ongoing and uh, involve some major projects which will still take years to complete. Uh, but we're also looking forward. We're thinking about future storms like Sandy. We're thinking about other climate risks. Uh, New York City uh, is uh, blessed to be at, at a harbor, and that's it's why we're here. You know, it, There's a tremendous natural harbor, but as a city composed largely of, of islands, uh, we are really at risk from sea level rise and future storms. And thinking about what the future of New York might look like under climate change is uh, something which uh, we do here in the mayor's office on a a daily basis. Um, So what does that actually look like day to day? Um, It's a... in the mayor's office we manage a few projects and programs but our main role is setting policy and coordinating the different actors. So going out and talking to all the different city agencies, all the different community groups, other politicians, um, other types of agencies that the city doesn't control. All these different groups are in, are part of New York. They, they make up New York along with the, the city the government itself and are all affected by events like Sandy in different ways and are all responding in slightly different ways. It's our role to make sure that that response is as coordinated and as thorough as possible. And to make sure that we're doing it in a way that is also addressing the um the other risks and challenges that new yorkers face
0: yeah so i mean how do you even begin to prioritize because i i feel like when thinking about climate change especially in a place like new york to me if i think about it in two vague categories it's kind of like how do you sustain life and respond to a gradual change in the ecosystems here but how do you also respond to that crisis moment like I think of the two response mechanisms like as being very different um, so do you have to at some point say one aspect of recovery is more important than another or it's more important to find evacuation routes than it is to rebuild landscapes that people can use every day
1: it's uh, that's one of the big questions it's it's very tricky um, it's hard to, to come up with any sort of broad Prioritization framework because it's always going to be so different community to community ecosystem to ecosystem, um, and so we we have to take it on a kind of case by case basis, um, which is challenging because there's a lot of neighborhoods. It's a big city and uh, the risks are are really buried, um, but there's there is nothing like a like a major storm to really underline your risks and show you where they are. And so a lot of our work being done um across all five boroughs is really being driven right now by um uh by, by the events of sandy by the by the neighborhoods that were flooded and so those neighborhoods are where we're, we're seeing the majority of, of reconstruction and of um uh coastal defense projects raising shorelines um developing natural barriers um, off the coast of staten island um, the Rockaway Boardwalk was finished recently and improved to be a, a cement boardwalk instead of a um, a wood boardwalk, so that it's much more durable and can act um, as a wave break. Um, so there's a, a lot of a lot of that was driven by the neighborhoods that were most badly hit by Sandy. But what do we do going forward? Well, heat is um, an issue already in New York and in cities around the world. Heat. Uh, is associated with severe health outcomes and high mortality. And it's, uh, it's not an equal opportunity um, crisis. It, it affects the vulnerable and the poor the most. And that's true right now. And it's going to be true in the future. Whenever we have a heat wave, there are certain communities that are more at risk and suffer more. And so we see a real uh, obligation and, and uh, prioritization to understand what communities are at highest risk from heat and how that risk might evolve with climate change. And so we in the mayor's office now are embarking on a program called Cool Neighborhoods that has uh, several dozen different projects and initiatives and policies um, wrapped up in it and involves stakeholders from across the city, family and then also um, outside of the city uh, government to address these risks um, from many different angles. So there's some basic things like well, we need we need to plant hundreds of the hundreds of thousands of more trees, and we're going to do that in the neighborhoods that have the highest score on our heat vulnerability index. It's a it's a map of the city basically that shows, uh, well, it, it's based upon dozens of socioeconomic characteristics and just um, sort of a thermal map of the city, and we're able to identify those neighborhoods that are um, at highest risk. Wow. And so, using that, we're going to prioritize where we plant trees and where we Um, develop other landscape architecture solutions to um, help keep those neighborhoods cool. Uh, There's also some really basic things that we're doing that um, don't involve major capital investment but increase the uh, the security of these vulnerable neighborhoods. An example of that is a program that uh, just got funded called uh, Be A Buddy which um, fills an important gap for people who are um, immobile in their homes and perhaps don't have family living nearby. It connects them with neighbors and other volunteers to check in on them when um, the power goes out. And oh, wow. this was, uh, this could come up in any kind of uh, uh, disaster. It certainly came up in Sandy where lots of people were in high rises, they couldn't get down, um, and they might not have had phone access and they were really, um, they were vulnerable. And communities rose up, and came out, and reached out, and knocked on doors, and, and checked in on people. But we want, to make that, we want to make sure that people are being attended to as quickly as possible, and that's the goal of this program.
0: Right. Wow. So I mean it really does encompass so many different aspects of community, I mean in terms of physical, structural issues of how to make buildings more accessible or safer, or, and also how to make sure that folks are just checking in on each other. I mean, how does this work relate to other work that you've done? Because I I remember you've done work all over the world and in rural communities and places that are very different from New York. And I think there's obviously so many challenges about working in an urban landscape, um, but they're very different. Like in rural communities, people being isolated and people maybe not even having neighbors to check on them could be an issue, whereas that that's probably not something you deal with as regularly here. But I mean, what, what's it like to work in this, environment
1: yeah it's um you know climate change is a is a tricky and difficult thing but it it basically means that all these um assumptions you've made about your environment for most of your life are are going to be a little different now the the things you thought you understood and knew and could count on might not be there anymore and so in new york that that means um a lot of different things one thing is that sea level rise might really impact Um, our low-lying neighborhoods that you know places where we are building and have built buildings and infrastructure and homes um, might be more susceptible to flooding in the future Mm -hmm. and that's um, that's what it means for us but what does it mean for other people and um, so in my work I've 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 gone to a lot of different places and in many of them worked on a variety of really different situations and it's interesting to see how it can vary Um, in uh, so I, I worked for um, in about about two months in the Canadian Arctic, working with the, the Inuit there, um, living on Baffin Island, north of the Arctic Circle, and who are also facing the impacts of climate change. And for them, it's, it's a very different situation, but it poses some maybe similar fundamental questions. I worked on a few different projects while I was there. One of the main ones was about food security. Inuit live in this sort of borderland world where they um, hunt quite a bit and really uh, enjoy the the food they get from the land. It's part of their culture, it's part of their heritage, it's just a strong preference. But the community's fairly large where I was and there are uh, fewer and fewer hunters relative to the population. It's hard to get all the, the, the country food, the land food they would like. So many people rely on the grocery store, which is stocked by airplanes that are flying up from the south of Canada Um, and so people's diet is sort of bifurcated there and it's also represents I think the 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 way many Inuit see themselves in the world as being connected to these two different cultures and trying to strike that balance well that's been going on for a while what happens with climate change well a lot of things for one it's becoming much more dangerous for the hunters up there they have always relied on their ability to read the ice and it's harder and harder to read the ice because it breaks up at different times and the characteristics have changed. Um, and it's been more hazardous, more hunters have been getting hurt and even dying um, than previously. The migration patterns of some of the animals they hunt are also changing. Um, the availability of some of the, the plants that are foraged. Uh, it's really posing some fundamental challenges that threaten not only their food security, but also um, you know one of the, the pillars of their culture. Uh, it was a very different scale to be working on than what we're doing here in New York where we're thinking about enormous infrastructure projects, a city of eight and a half million people, um, and a, you know, a capital budget with with billions of dollars being spent on buildings and sewers and roads and all kinds of things. But the fundamental questions are that underlie all this are the same. It's we've, we've assumed things in the past and it's led to us making choices and spending money and spending time and choosing careers that were based upon assumptions of the way the climate was and we can't make those same assumptions anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking back to when I first met you, which, I mean, just a short anecdote, the context that I met you was, you know, you were kind of consulting with the landscape architecture students about a project that we were working through, you know, doing residential housing in Red Hook. And so much of our decision-making as, theoretical planners and designers had to do with climate change and sea level rise and, and figuring out how to protect the people that we would eventually be building for. And time and time again, a lot of us were just kind of scratching our heads saying, well, why are we putting people here? Why are we putting people in a coastal community, in, a, in an urban coastal community where the likelihood of, of damage and um, health risk is just so much higher? So, I mean, how do you balance that question of, of Addressing the needs that exist because of the way that we've built, but also trying to stop building patterns that maybe don't make sense anymore.
1: Yeah, it's an enormously difficult question and it ties into what I mentioned earlier about um, balancing climate risks and climate challenges with the existing challenges people face today. And one of the big challenges we face in New York is housing. It's a real focus of the mayor to provide, you know, tens of thousands of additional units of affordable housing, he's been delivering on that, and has a plan to continue to um, in the coming years. But, um, in a in a city this dense and a city made up of islands, we are uh, hard pressed to not build in the the areas near the water, areas where it could flood. A significant portion of the city is already in the flood zone, and that flood zone is going to increase with climate change as sea levels rise, and so. It's uh, it's a real issue, you know. How do we how do we balance these competing forces—the need for more housing, the need to give New Yorkers a place to live um, and a home—and at the same time, this new and growing risk. And so the the answers are going to vary a lot depending on which neighborhoods we're looking at. There are certain parts of the city where, after Sandy, uh, the state of New York offered buyouts to communities, and some communities took them up on it. Mm. Um, So there's a neighborhood in Staten Island, Oakwood Beach, that is now uninhabited. The buildings were torn down and it's regrowing back to a natural state. And that was based upon the choice of that community. Some other nearby communities chose not to leave and are given different options and ways of protecting their homes. But it's a, big, it's a big issue, and it's a tricky one. Um, you know, we've seen great examples from other parts of the world, particularly in the Netherlands, where there is nowhere to escape. You know, everything's in the floodplain. So what, what are they doing? They they certainly have built lots of levees and dikes and coastal protection projects, and we're doing some of that here too, but you, you can never do enough of that. And even when you do build them, it, sometimes you need a redundancy anyway. And so I think they've demonstrated a really interesting model what we call wet flood proofing um, which is basically allowing the water to flow in whether it's flow into a community or flow into the first floor of a building you design in such a way that it can be um, easily recovered damage is minimal hopefully just a quick cleanup your electronic and mechanical systems are all elevated nothing on the first floor could be easily damaged by water it's an appealing approach um, for communities that don't want to leave where you know the land where they've been for a long time where people's homes are if there's a way to live you know in greater harmony with with water that is always going to come one way or the other um that's certainly an appealing approach but um that doesn't always make sense either so it's trying to find the right balance for the right community the right geography and making the best choice we can using the best climate projections we have Mm -hmm. looking into the future
0: yeah and I'm thinking about some of the projects that I've encountered that really address climate change and really kind of put climate change at the forefront of the concept of the plan. So there's a couple projects that were um, proposed for Lower Manhattan. I'm totally spacing on what it called. Is it the Big U? That is was that, it?
1: that was the old name um, from the architects. We we've split it into several little projects with less exciting names like uh, <laughs> the East Side Coastal Resiliency Project mm-hmm. and the Lower Manhattan Coastal Resiliency Project. Yeah. Or...
0: So, I mean, and again, not to, not to just beat the whole landscape architecture piece of it into the ground because I know there's so many other important aspects of it. <laughs> it's but, an important piece. But I, I wonder, I mean, again, it becomes this tricky balance of, of people and natural ecosystems. Do you, does it make sense to be thinking about or, or actually funding projects that are really aiming to make coastal resiliency attractive and appealing to people. Like, like sometimes I think what we really need to do is we need to get all the people out of here. We need to stop trying to make it a place for people because, you know, the data is proving that it's eventually not gonna be a place for people at all. And I wonder how much of it is an illusion, you know, when I think about either remediation prog- projects or, or Reinforcing coastal barriers, and there's also places to sit and there's also places to play basketball It's just like it's sort of confusing, but I I also know that it's It's complicated Um, So I mean do you ever cringe when you see projects that are focusing too heavily on one aspect of it or the other or do you feel like it's? resources could be allocated more efficiently or
1: You know I mean as important and as as enormous the challenge of climate change is, it's always just, you know, part of a larger conversation. And I think that's, it's still a new field, you know, preparing for climate change, adaptation, resiliency, whatever you want to call it, it's a new field and we're still sort of developing, you know, what it means and what it should look like, what its best practices are. But I'm convinced that one of its, for it to be a successful field, it has to be a field that is fully enmeshed in, larger city decision making. It can't be a sort of a separate thing being done by an environmental group. So I'm really, you know, glad to see the mayor, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, focused on, you know, having a a large team focused on resiliency, of which I'm a part, um, doing this full time in the context of the mayoral leadership and with, you know, ability to converse with people across the city. Um, And so what do we do from our perspective? What do we do from that, that, that viewpoint? Well, we see that there's a lot of challenges in some of these neighborhoods. One of them is coastal protection. Another one in many of them is, well, a lack of green space, a lack of recreation, a lack of places for New Yorkers to be outside, to be healthy, to be safe. Um, if we can provide both of those at the same time, we would, we would like to. The, the, these things aren't just done for aesthetic purposes, although that's important too. They're they're done to make these communities strong and whole, to get community buy-in, to um, spur further development where where you know where possible and where relevant. Um, and we want to try to make sure that our coastal protection projects are are part of that larger push and impetus, because the bottom line is that you know, the the risks New York faces are are real, but we're not going anywhere. We're gonna, we're gonna find a way to um, keep this, you know, the greatest city in the world and mm-hmm. uh, uh, address the risks that we face in ways that are um, smart, balance you know, our, our, our competing requirements to um, you know, be good stewards of the public dollar, but also keep uh, New Yorkers safe. And yeah. um, so it's, uh, that's the challenge we face and that's what we're working towards.
0: Yeah. It's a humongous job. <laughs> um and then I just have one more question. Well, I have a lot of questions, but in the interest of time, I'm thinking a lot about resiliency as as kind of this holistic idea and I think that the work that you do is seems to be very committed to the many dimensions of what resilience can and should look like in a city like this. And I know a lot of it has to do with equity and, and and making opportunities more available. And I mean what when you think about kind of the the search for a more equitable and just community in the five boroughs and in New York in general, I mean what what kind of steps do you take to address that piece of it?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's a enormously important part of the conversation and um, and one that we are still, um, I think, in the early days of really institutionalizing that into what we do. Um, just a few months ago, the uh, the city council passed um a law setting up an environmental justice board to oversee to well, to to weigh in on this very question on a regular basis to help oversee major projects and plans in the city to make sure that uh, the development of major projects, whether they're resiliency focused or not um, is done in a way that is uh, conscious of, uh, of equity and um, EJ uh, requirements and needs. I mean, what it means for us now in, in, the, in the Office of Recovery and Resiliency is um, a few different things. One of the main things that we are trying to learn about and be aware of in every one of our projects is sort of the history of environmental issues in the neighborhoods we're working in, and also the, just the socioeconomic context and history of where we are. And, you know, we show up in some of these neighborhoods that were badly hit by Sandy, and that's sort of just the latest in a long history of, of real challenges they face that are really particular to that neighborhood. Might have been other environmental challenges, might have been a history of polluting industries, it might have been um, lack of housing or poor quality housing or transportation, all types of things. And understanding what those are, understanding what those challenges are and how our project should interface with that is crucial because we're coming in often with uh, federal and state funding, um, you know, new pots of money, big pots of money in some cases that have a clear goal of um, addressing the climate risk of making this part of the city more resilient. But if we can do more with that money, If we can spend that money in a way that is not going to exacerbate or build upon past injustices, but if we can in some way address those injustices, make these neighborhoods safer, cleaner, better places to live, then we wanna do that. And so back to the idea of green space, that's often a part of this. There's often a lack of green space in some of these neighborhoods. And so if we can do that and a resiliency project, if that's feasible, then that's what we'd like to explore. But I would say the other big, other big thing here is um, the community engagement throughout all of this is is crucial. Um, A lot of our projects are enormous, capital projects, they take years to uh, design, years to construct. You know, we have a long road to go on some of these things, and that's just the way it is with designing uh, infrastructure. But it also needs to take a while because we want to hear everybody's views. And so going out to the community, going to local town halls, going to community board meetings having special meetings um whether they are you know just to listen to people's comments or to actually engage them in sort of a charrette style design uh, exercises uh, is crucial and we do that a lot in our office Um, we have a whole team dedicated just to kind of running and conducting those events but everybody in the office goes out on a regular basis to Mm -hmm. engage with the communities um and the communities are engaged. Um, it's It has been almost five years since Sandy, but I wouldn't say there's been any decrease in the level of awareness and action by community members, community boards. The interest has been continued and sustained, and I think that's been crucial to keeping um, the political will Driving towards addressing these issues. And just the other thing to say is, there's also some really well organized and really effective community groups out there too um, that represent specific neighborhoods. Usually, mm-hmm. that uh, some of which are very much resiliency focused, or it's one thing that they do. But these groups um, are tireless advocates for their communities, and and I think that's uh, you know, an invaluable part of the conversation. To valuable part of the mix to have here, that it's it's not just the government, it's not just individual citizens, it's organized citizens speaking um, in, a, in a powerful way.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it seems like partnerships and conversations with those groups who are living in these communities and have that insight. I mean, it's why community engagement is such a huge part of design and planning. And if you don't make an effort to really get that kind of feedback and input before you start making plans and mm-hmm. putting these things in motion, then it's not really gonna serve anyone. Um, and you're more likely to end up with something that people either don't appreciate or aren't gonna use or just have, you know, something that's incompatible with the needs of the folks that are, are um, looking for some kind of solution. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. Well, I've learned a lot in a short amount of time um, and I'm grateful for your, for your insight. My pleasure. Okay, that's it. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of First Floor Corner Store.